0: This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens.
1: Hi, this is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best An award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers And this is The Taylor Stevens Show With my good friend Steve Campbell Where we are kicking writing in the butt One word at a time
0: And Taylor, most of the time When you kick someone in the butt You have shoes on (laughs) Are you one of those women Who obsess about shoes? No But I But I know where you're going with this
1: (laughs) I am I have everyday shoes and then i have farm shoes (laughs) and i obsess far more about my farm shoes i I don't have very many shoes but when it comes to farm shoes we had talked i think it was on the podcast about how uh one of our earlier chit chats about when i stepped on that nail and how i like punctured my last good pair of waterproof shoes so it's been this frustration of mine that shoes like they're expensive or at least for me they are to have to keep buying sloggers or uh muck boots or whatever and i've never been able to bring myself to throw away a pair of like boots that have gotten cracks or whatever in them because i always feel like well those are really good and maybe one day i will need them so i can't <laughs> i can't get rid of them but The other day, well, it was actually several weeks ago, maybe even more than a month ago, I had to go somewhere tromping through where there was going to be water because of all the rain. And so I'd taken my good pair, my previously good pair of boots, and I had tried to gorilla tape them shut to be able to walk where there was water without, you know, to kind of seal them up. And it lasted all of about maybe a minute, and so for like however long that was, I'm just tromping around with just water sloshing around the boot and everything. I was like, well, that didn't work. And so after a while, I was like, I was like, okay, well, let it dry. I'm still not getting rid of that boot because I'm I'm convinced that it's going to be good for something at some point. And the other thing that I'm constantly having to deal with are, ho- I have a lot of hoses and they're good quality hoses. Yay, Costco. But uh, they they do get splits in them either from something cutting it or just the wear and tear that they're put under and the other day one more hose grew a leak and i was just like oh my god i was so mad so i went out i went and and i and i gorilla taped it up but i already knew from experience that that gorilla tape is not going to hold long enough and it'll eventually just start spraying again it won't be as big of a leak but it's still going to spray and then i had this like epiphany and i was like wait a minute i have these cans of flex seal and if you've if you've seen the commercials <laughs> which are fun <laughs>
0: everyone flex has seen seal those commercials
1: supposed to be impenetrable right and i was like okay so i went and got the flex seal and i realized like i i, I never I hadn't used it i read the instructions and and like i really didn't know what i was doing and at first i was like seeing if I could just flex seal the, the wound up in the hose. I was like, that's not going to work because it's not, it's just a spray. It's basically, in my very layman's interpretation, it's basically just like rubber cement in spray form. So I was like, fine. So I taped the hose up with Gorilla tape and then flex sealed over that to seal it in. And then I was like, wait a minute, doing like, you know, evil, Dr. Evil scratching on my, you know, little pinky on my mouth going, wait a minute. And so I went and got the boots that I had not thrown away and I and I taped it little tiny strips of Gorilla tape and flex sealed, <laughs> flex sealed. <It's laughs> this disgustingly <laughs> ugly boot, <laughs> but it is watertight again. <laughs> I'm <am> so <laughs> proud of myself. <laughs> That's my story.
0: And that transitions beautifully into a discussion about managing misdirection and red herrings. Because really, does it now? If if a, a herring is is it kind of a fish? I don't even know. Is a herring yes. a fish? All right. And fish. if you're wading around in swamp water, there might be fish there, so it really is a clean transition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes
1: applause Steve that was really good <laughs> so today's I'm actually really excited about today's subject matter because it is coming from someone other than me this is from C.A. Newsome and if this was in response to our show on story weight in regards to red herrings and oops, She's just offered a lot of really good advice that she wrote up specifically for me for this show to share her hacks in mystery writing. Now, I am not a mystery specialist. I don't like, even though my books have mystery and intrigue in them, they are not mysteries. And as with all genres, mysteries themselves carry certain expectations and there are techniques and tricks that authors develop for filling those expectations, but that is outside my wheelhouse. And so Carol was incredibly generous in writing up her insights into dealing with red herrings, mysteries, story weight, and all of that. And so for the most part, I'm just going to read her Notes, I made some very small changes for structure and uh, potentially clarity, but because I am not inside Carol's head, I may have messed stuff up accidentally. So if I did anything that you don't understand is probably my fault, and apologies to seeing Newsome for potentially messing anything up before, and before we, get, we get, to, get
0: before we get started. Oh, okay. <laughs> And I'll preempt your before we get to this with my before we get to this. Uh, C.A. Newsom is the author of the Leah Anderson Dog Park Mysteries, a seven seven books in the series as of now, uh, cozy mystery series. And there's so much good information in this package that she provided to Taylor that I, I read mysteries all the time, and there are things in there where I'm just slapping my head going, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this was a thing. I just keep seeing it and didn't realize it was a thing. So there's a lot of really good stuff in here. So thank you, Carol, for, for the time and effort that it took to put this together. That was really fantastic.
1: I agree. And before I get to reading that, I'm going to read some of her notes. Uh, one of them came from Facebook, the group where she was commenting on the show that specific podcast and the second came inside the email with the material so it's kind of like a add-on to what she wrote but i'm just going to read it first because i don't want to botch it by trying to fit it in and get it in the wrong place so first her comments she said i'm with steve about knowing a suspect is a red herring because they show up too early in the story There was a series I watched years ago. I looked for the character who showed up in the opening scene who had, and here's the key part, no significant purpose, and that was always the killer. Agatha Christie was disgusted to learn her readers were sidestepping all her careful twists and turns and just looking for the least likely character to be the killer. She responded by writing my favorite Christie story where the killer was so obvious you knew they didn't do it and led everyone down the garden path looking for someone else. It was positively brilliant. That's the biggest challenge for any mystery writer, outwitting readers who are detecting via story structure instead of the story itself. And regarding Steve's comment about how to handle a red herring that comes under suspicion early in the story, I saw an episode of Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, season two, episode five, Death Alley, which handled the problem brilliantly. Mysteries fall into three categories, not genres: who done it, how done it, and how catch em. <laughs> This plot fakes out the viewer by starting as a who done it and segueing into a how catch em with the wrong suspect. The plot in the plot, a cop, steed, and his boss, Sparrow, are at a bowling alley when a fight breaks out and later one of the combatants is killed. The other combatant, the surviving combatant, Milo, is presumed to be the killer. And Sparrow, the boss, pushes Steed, the cop, to close the case. The problem, Sparrow was the last one to see the victim alive, according to Milo. He'd roughed up both combatants in a back room. So we know the goal is to save the wrongly accused, and Sparrow is immediately set up as the red herring. At this point in the story, emphasis turns to the conflict Steed faces. Regardless of whether Sparrow is innocent or guilty, investigating him is a career killer. But not investigating him will likely get an innocent boy killed. The various dilemmas posed took up much of the rest of the show and were convincing enough that I was totally caught up in whether we will finally learn that Sparrow's incompetence was a mask for corruption and if Steed's job will survive, until... Miss Fisher uncovers more layers and creates an entirely different narrative. So my new hack is using the untouchable suspect as a red herring. This is where the audience attention is diverted to the task of figuring out how the detective will survive investigating someone who is hands off or how they will prove the person you know did it when all evidence except their motive and your gut says they didn't. So I just thought that was brilliant.
0: I think it's fascinating that she has such a grasp of just the genre, the mystery genre, that that she's able to come up with hacks and, and names like the untouchable suspect. That's really clever.
1: Yes, I agree. And there's more coming here as that is outside her actual little, um, not little, but her little write-up that she did for us, um, which she is titled managing misdirection in mysteries and other genres and that we're going to use that for the title of this show as well so she says and again i've slightly moved stuff around forgive me if i get any of this wrong i was doing it for structure but she says i've never heard this talked about in classes on writing mysteries but i've come to this conclusion after decades of reading thousands of them your primary job is to lead your detective astray as long as possible without making them look stupid. And originally, that was attached to an explanation on reasonable faulty assumptions, which is coming up next. But I felt like that was so key that it is like we need that upfront. So then we've got plot twist as bubble porn. So, bubble or Mormon porn is a type of meme where photos of scantily clad people are overlaid with one or more graphic elements with bubbles or holes revealing bits of skin, implying that the person in the underlying photo is naked. The revealed elements are absolutely true, but are intertwined with obfuscating material that creates an impression of something different. And for any twist to work, you must perform the same task so that when you make your reveal, it's clear that the thing was there all along. The more you are able to reveal of the underlying picture without revealing its true nature, the more successful the twist. Now, if you haven't seen bubble porn, do not search for it at work. It is <laughs> technically safe for work. Is this a thing? Is this an actual thing? I thought you thing. made that word it's a up. Thing. No, no, no. It's a thing. So I, I went and researched it and I think we even talked about it maybe on the show quite some time ago. But it's basically what you do is you take a picture of, well, mostly women who are in a bikini or something that is very scanty, right? There's a lot of skin showing. Now, if you just look at that picture by itself, it's very obvious that person in the picture is not naked. They've got clothes on. It is a PG picture for all intents and purposes. But then you take what she describes here as a um, graphical element, and you layer it over that picture. And the graphical element looks a lot like Swiss cheese, where the holes in the cheese are exposing everything that is bare skin and the parts of the cheese that is not holes is is layered over wherever the bikini, the clothing parts are, gives the impression that the person underneath the cheese, (laughs) the Swiss cheese slice is naked. They're not. If you look at the original picture, it's clearly not. So you take something that is basically PG rated and by concealing parts of it, you make it look X rated. And those that's left to the imagination. And I think this developed as a way. I don't know. There's there's Internet myths about it. I, I don't actually know what the true story is, but the myth is that it was a way for people who it would be against their religion to look at porn. They could. They're not really technically looking at porn because it's not, but it looks like it because of the illusion, right? So that's the that's what she's getting at here is that you take something that it's absolutely true, but it's entwined with obfuscating material, it gives the impression of it being something different. And that's what your job as a mystery writer is when you're managing the misdirection. So as she says, the more you're able to reveal of the underlying picture without revealing its true nature, the more successful the twist. So reasonable, faulty assumptions. To lead your detective astray without making them look stupid, faulty assumptions are required. The early in the story, you establish reasonable, faulty assumptions, the easier your job will be. An example, your one clue to your murderer is blurry surveillance video of a tall man in sweats and a hoodie. Only it isn't a tall man, it's a short woman in heels. Your detective legitimately spends 300 pages looking for a tall skinny guy while you wave all kinds of red flag clues that don't register with your readers because they're looking for a guy too. The more successful your faulty assumption, the more obvious you can be with your clues to the real killer. It is critical that your faulty assumption be reasonable. I had an I want to throw this book against the wall moment when an experienced detective was following a GPS signal. He did not find what he was looking for at the house where the GPS registered. He then gave up his search. I suspect every 10-year-old child knows that GPS can be inaccurate by hundreds of feet. An experienced detective giving up at that point when any idiot knew the thing he was looking for was a stone's throw away, that's too stupid to live territory. Mm -hmm. So, reasonable faulty assumptions, brilliant. But they have to be reasonable,
0: and that's that's one of those that when I read this was a real head slapper to me. It it seems obvious when you hear hear it, um, but I've read so many books where that exact same thing happened, and I'm I'm spending all my time looking for the tall guy. Right. I,
1: I in the in the version of too stupid to live territory, I spend a lot of time in my own work, making sure that the character's thought processes on why they do X and have ruled out Y and Z are intact so that someone doesn't get too clever for themselves and just say, well, why didn't they do this other thing? Like I have learned that it's just easier to get that all out on the page than just assume that your readers are with you on, you know, that they're, they're, they understand your thinking on it. So my way of eliminating potential too stupid to live territory is making sure we understand the thought process that the character is going through, that why they chose the decisions that they chose. And I think, again, not my specialty, but I think that that can actually benefit or amplify the faulty assumption concept and the red herring concept because you're following your character, the character's thinking, as long as that character is smart and intelligent and you trust them and you're not like, how could you be so stupid about it? That will guide you down that road.
0: And I believe that that show where we went into some detail about what you're talking about now was the logic ladder show, wasn't it?
1: I know we talked about that in the logic ladder for sure. And we may have talked about it. We talked about
0: it in another episode as well. So that the logic ladder show is episode two eighty-seven, if you're looking for more information on what Taylor just talked about.
1: Thank you so much for that. I couldn't remember. So then we move on to planting clues. While your detective is following clues that don't pan out, it is necessary to plant your bubble porn clues. The elements that will create the realization that the truth was in front of your face the entire time. Misdirection is required. There are many ways to accomplish this and the more flexible you are, the less predictable you will be. The strategies below can be layered for more effectiveness. So these are clue planting, bubble clue planting uh, techniques. Story weight. Story weight plays a big part in misdirection. It's an imperfect algorithm that refers to how much attention a particular element or event commands in your story and can encompass anything that draws attention to a particular element or event in your writing. The amount of words you spend on something implies its importance. A different kind of weight is inherent in your word choices. Story weight should be manipulated to ensure attention is where you want it and not placed on things that kill your pacing and bore the pants off your readers. Lauren Block, Lawrence Block refers to this pacing issue as shoe leather. Wasted words detailing how your protagonist traveled from one point to another when the trip in no way impacts your plot. He rightly recommends eliminating it as much as possible, and I second that motion. You call attention to something by crafting a pithy, original, memorable phrase to describe it. Michael Connolly refers to the telling detail and talks about a cop taking off his glasses at a crime scene to look at something, revealing the teeth marks in the temple piece, making tangible the stress and frustration underlying the cop's cool demeanor. I read about this more than a year ago, and that one image is the only thing I recall from that book. You make something forgettable with drab plumage. An old paring knife is much more forgettable than her pen caught the edge of a blade buried in the drunk drawer, gleaming silver in the dusky room. She pawed through the jumble of detritus to retrieve it. Someone had crafted it by hand with hammered copper rivets and a cherry handle in size with a Celtic design. Yes, old paring knife is much more forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> Three-ring circus. Look, a squirrel! This approach is popular in Cozy's right now, and it's not my favorite. It involves having so many different story arcs for the reader to follow that the reader and your detective are too distracted to put the pieces of the main mystery together. The result is a kind of three-ring circus. My problem with this is the lack of focus can make for unsatisfying reading. Some folks love it. I think it's a question of story weight, where the main plot gets buried in minor story arcs that take center stage. It's a cheap way to obfuscate a mystery that would otherwise be simple to solve I, i'm not again this is not my wheelhouse i'm not an expert on mysteries but i would like just from my personal experience i second everything that 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 there i i would not want to have my name on a book that uses um mult just like lots of story arcs to to obfuscate i i feel it's I am unsatisfied when I read stuff like that, so I want to write books that I like to read, and I don't want to leave my readers feeling unsatisfied, and so I would not use that technique. But it is a technique, and it definitely works.
0: I'm with both of you. When I come across books like that, I just find them incredibly frustrating.
1: Yeah. So the next technique is water under the bridge. The more pages between the introduction of a clue and the revelation of its importance, the more likely your readers will forget they saw it in the first place. An object that appears to be incidental is present in your first scene. If you wait 100 pages before a witness says such an item was missing or important, your readers won't remember it's there. Changing context. This one I think is absolutely brilliant. This is easy with verbal or written clues. Your dying victim gasps, look for mumble bridge. Your detective starts combing maps, but it meant grandpa's dentures. Have you ever seen someone you knew, but they are in a place you don't expect them, so you don't recognize them? With objects, you hide them in plain sight by presenting them in such a way they are assumed to be something else. Your waitress is wearing the hope diamond, but she's slovenly and the setting is so cheap, you just assume it's cubic zirconia. I, I, I find that very similar to faulty assumptions. Like it's the same concept used differently and equally brilliant. Breadcrumbing. You take your clue and you tear it into tiny bits so each one seems irrelevant and unrelated. Dribble them out at miserly intervals. In the end, your brilliant detective will stitch them together in an aha moment. And I think I subconsciously or not really being aware of what I'm doing, I use breadcrumbing a lot because for me, my way of storytelling is that trickling of information, It's I I don't I don't have a formula that I can say this is how I do it. It's just an an innate understanding of storytelling that, you know, you reveal information and then you reveal a little bit more later and gradually all the pieces come together. So I really can to me breadcrumbing makes a lot of sense because I use it a lot, but I couldn't break it down for you and tell you exactly how. Lost in a crowd. Make your clue an incidental item in a pile or a list of items. Mention the twisted oak that later appears on a treasure map as you wax rhapsodic about the landscape as you set the mood and introduce a location. Or your detective digs through a pile of junk and your murder weapon is just one item in that pile drawing no special attention. The shiny shiny object. When the fan dancer drops her ostrich plumes, no one pays attention to the cigarette girl picking your pocket. This one adds extra oomph to Lost in a Crowd. Twisted Oak gets a passing mention as you delight over the castle looming behind it. The paring knife gets hardly a glance as your detective tosses it aside to retrieve a vintage apple core. Dual Purpose. Whether you are introducing a clue or a red herring suspect, give it and them a legitimate story purpose that has nothing to do with their real, and I interjected this word, plot purpose. In the type of mystery that introduces the killer early in the book, it's easy to identify the killer when there's a character that doesn't need to be there. Give them a role that stands on its own. A trope that has been done much but still works is the friend, sibling, parent who provides emotional support to your falsely accused character and offers a false alibi to protect them this alibi has a dual purpose. Most readers don't realize the helpful loved one is also creating an alibi for themselves, and they would not be able to offer a fake alibi if they had been somewhere that could be corroborated. I think dual purpose is critical in, just from a characterization, storytelling point of view, like I can't fathom, you know, I understand a lot of the issues that are being brought up here, but I don't have a lot of experience reading mysteries that I can draw and go, oh yeah, this is what they're talking about. So it's hard for me to imagine anyone writing a story in which any of the characters don't have their own role outside the plot point of them being the killer. Because if you've listened to this show for any length of time, we hammer over and over on the concept of everything deserves needs requires a purpose dialogue requires a purpose every scene needs to serve a purpose everything needs to serve a purpose and if you have characters in your story that are only there for the sake of the plot they're not really serving a purpose because the plot in and of itself is not a legitimate purpose it has the purpose has to be story related outside of the plot so to me this is such a key point regardless like it's almost like it's not even a subset of dropping clues it is way up at the top of everything has to serve a purpose outside of the plot that's where I would put it because for me the idea of writing a book where you have a character there that doesn't have their own purpose just screams hey (laughs) I'm the killer or whatever you know so do with that as you would. So the next we talk about red herrings. While planting clues often involves eliminating weight so they travel under the radar, red herrings require a finesse and a reverse strategy. Successful red herrings depend on adding weight or emphasis while looking like you're not. Think of this like the hapless, love-struck person who finds excuses to jog by your house or buy coffee at the same place you do, even though they work miles away. They're trying to look nonchalant and wind up being obvious instead. You want the reader to feel like they alone figured it out. So you toss someone out there, develop them as a legitimate character, make them a plausible suspect except for one unfortunate thing that eliminates them early on, like an alibi, lack of motive, physically impossible... If you dangle them a bit, use a bit of attention, tease them like a fly fishing lure, your reader, who is already hunting for the real killer, who is not the suspect your detective is pursuing, will latch onto them with the expectation that you will destroy the alibi, eliminate the physical obstacle, provide the secret motive. It is good manners to have a consolation reveal about this character at the end so your reader doesn't feel like they wasted their investment. So I totally get this. And the point being that, yeah, she said it all. But if you guys have any questions about what that actually means in practicality, feel free to send them back in. We can clarify. But that is just, it's, it's a very succinct, brilliant way of articulating what it's like when you're dangling information that is misleading. It's great. So under red herrings, we have forget to confirm for Clues and Red herrings. So a basic cop mantra is assume nothing, believe nothing, check everything. So your witness says Bob would have been snowboarding in Vail when the murder occurred. In your reader's mind, that will put Bob out of the running. Meanwhile, your detective is following more fruitful leads until your final chapters when a chance remark reveals that Bob's trip was canceled at the last minute and he never left. It helps to maintain your detective's credibility if they actually pursue confirming the story but something delays getting the answer. I hold that bit till the forehead smacking moment because calling attention to it earlier in the story only says you're putting too much energy into it, so it must be important. If this suspect is a red herring, make the pursuit of confirmation visible and draw that attention. Killer adjacent, the castle method. One way of dealing with red herrings is that they are not strictly red herrings. The structure of the show Castle is that a lead takes Castle and Beckett to someone who turns out to be innocent. But during their encounter with the suspect, they learn something that takes them further in their investigation. Repeat this three or four times and you have the clues needed to uncover the truth. Sometimes they end up doubling back with the realization that an early suspect really did do it, but were written off due to forget to confirm or faulty assumptions. The lady doth protest too much. If you subtly convey multiple times that Alice could not have murdered Dan because X, Y, Z, your reader is likely to become convinced that Alice absolutely did it. If you overdo it, they will think you are a bad writer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but still, that's a fantastic red herring of, of making it seem like someone is guilty because they protest too much. And that's as far that's what we've got. And I just that's just brilliant. Uh, so so much thanks to seeing you some for that. It's a lot of time and effort that went into that for you our listeners, especially those of you who are focused on mysteries and needing to manage misdirection and red herrings and such in relation to story weight. So hopefully that was helpful and you enjoyed it as much as Steve and I did. And that's all I got.
0: Yes, because we absolutely did enjoy it. So uh, Carol, thank you very much for for doing all of this. And thank you for for giving me several head-slapping moments as as we were going through this. Um, I'll just reiterate Something that the, another head-slapping moment was the whole forget-to-confirm thing. I just read a book where there this was a key component in it, in it, and it never occurred to me that they didn't confirm, and it got to the end, and it, there was this little thing in my mind like, I think I've seen this before, but I didn't realize it was an actual thing. And uh, now, I, now I get it, and I'm going to be looking for it more often. But I, I'm just astonished that you have... You have such a grasp of the genre that you were able to put this together. So thank you very much.
1: And thank you guys for being with us and listening. And we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday.